You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Episode 16 of our Operator Series. As usual, I am very excited on our guest today. We have Jim Facina, who is the founder and CEO of Amora Coffee. I know we all have strong opinions on coffee. With COVID, we're probably drinking a lot more of it than usual. I think that's one of the things we're going to dive in with Jim. You guys all know the rules. Let's, let's start with where are you dialing in from? Um, I'll throw it in the, the Slack or the, the channel as well. As usual, I am here in sunny Southern California, so Orange County. Jim, where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from Reading, Connecticut from my home. Our office is in Derbury, Connecticut. So hello, everybody. Oh, nice. I'm right down in uh, Cape Cod, right in Sandwich, Mass. So about three hours and, away from there, Jim. And as, as we've been doing recently, our, our giveaways, we have a special giveaway this time. And so... We're figuring out what it is exactly from uh, that, that um, we're going to be providing from Amora Coffee, but we will be giving away coffee from Amora. Uh, so get the questions prepared, get them coming. Um, Nick told me I don't qualify because I'm definitely going to ask the most questions, but I guess uh, for some reasons I got I need to read the fine print and maybe uh, modify it. But I guess I, I guess I don't qualify. So. I'll call out some of the places here. We've got, nice, as usual, we got people from all over. We have Canada, we have London, we have Florida, India, Chicago, San Diego, LA, some more Orange County, more LA. Let's see, another Orange County, nice. More Florida, Laguna Beach, Philly, Helsinki. I love it. I actually got the good Helsinki one. Nashville's a great place. I'm not sure if you guys have ever been. That's a, one of the most beautiful places in North Carolina. It's, it's very cool. I've Just never that. been. Did Jeremy from Mexico. Warning about Helsinki, depending on when you're there, if you're there during the summer, maybe I heard this from a friend, it can be all of a sudden like three in the morning and it still looks like it's noon. So um, be careful. So to jump in here, like I mentioned, we have Jim over here, founder and CEO of More Coffee. They're a curated coffee club with super premium coffee, goes through their nine-step roasting process. I'm sure we'll learn a bit more of that. A question actually I was going to ask later that I actually want to jump in first, especially as a lot of everybody in the audience here is mostly owners and operators of their own brands. And I think product differentiation and marketing and understanding your customer is obviously so important. So over here with a mug with my kids on it in here, probably much to your chagrin, and I will be upgrading my coffee life soon, is the good old Starbucks pod. So Starbucks is huge. Obviously, they continue to grow rather well year over year. What is the difference between somebody who drinks Starbucks and somebody who drinks Amora? Coffee will pertains to two of your primary sensories. It, one is taste and one is smell. So, you know, coffee is very personal. And so when you're thinking about a Starbucks or you're thinking about a Dunkin' or you're thinking about an Amora, um, it is really a taste profile and it's a smell profile, a, um, an aroma profile. So it's really important that you're appealing to um, different type of coffee drinkers. When you're thinking about a pod versus a traditional grind, one of the things that uh, we have found is that as you are extracting your coffee from a pod under high pressure, high steam, high water, it's probably not extracting it as full of a body as you could extract in a normal drip or especially as a cold brew. So that's, you know, one of the things that we really pride Amora Coffee on is the fact that we do go through a nine stage roasting process, but that's just a roasting process. When we get it to your cup, we really want to make sure that you're preparing it right. And that's one of the reasons why Amora does not sell pods today is because you can't deliver. The, we don't believe you could deliver, deliver the best cup of coffee through a pod. Tell us a little bit more about Amora Coffee and your story and how you actually started the brand. Because I know it's kind of a husband and wife team that you guys started back in, what, about nine or 10 years ago now, give or take? Yeah. So maybe you can kind of start there and then we'll kind of lead up to, you know, where you're at today and COVID and everything that's happened. So my co-founder of Amora is Marina Di Domenico. She's my wife. 
Uh, we founded Amora in 2011, but we go way back almost 30 years to selling coffee direct to consumers. We both work for uh, Kraft Foods in their direct to consumer Jabalia coffee space. And so uh, I spent about 10 years there and she spent about 12 years there. So we understand how to get coffee into the hands of consumers at home. We also owned an advertising agency called Facina Marketing Group before we sold that to a company called uh, Digital Media Solutions, one of the fastest growing performance-based marketing companies in the U.S. We sold that uh, last year, but Javalia was a client of ours right up until 2011. And when they ex exited the direct-to-consumer space to compete at the retail level with uh, Starbucks, we decided to start our own direct-to-consumer coffee business. So we've been doing coffee for a long time. You mentioned marketing, and I want to get back to your something you mentioned around, you know, Amora versus Starbucks and others is is the senses. So it's it's the taste, but it's also the smell, and especially digitally, that's one of the toughest parts to really tap into with the buyer. Is you can't smell something through your phone or through your computer. And so how do you utilize the senses or what customers expect through their senses, maybe in your ad copy or your advertising? So it's really interesting. Most people don't know this, but it's, um, you know, it's a little bit of a uh, play on words. But Amora is aroma spelled backwards. And uh, that was purposely done because it was all about the aroma of coffee and the sensory of coffee. So we, we really do take the aroma of coffee very, very seriously. So when you're trying to sell digitally and you're trying to bring product into somebody's home and they haven't had a chance to smell it in a coffee shop and they haven't had a chance to taste it, you have to give them the opportunity of trying it. We give them a low barrier of entry. And, you know, every one of our customers have the opportunity to try Amora coffee for free. So you're going to pay shipping and handling to receive your bag of coffee, but you receive it free. If, if you like it, if it, if it appeals to your sensories, then you're going to buy it again. If you don't like it, um, there's really no hard feelings, but we understand how important it is to appeal to the uh, two primary senses. Interesting. I, I thought it'd be a play on a more or love, but it's interesting. Aroma spelled backwards. So question on people being able to try it for free, which I think speaks volumes in the confidence you have in the product. We have customers that utilize that tactic and we, we have quite a few that are evaluating it. As you think through the economics of your business and you know customer acquisition costs and utilizing that that free product to then get people in if you can just share your thought process kind of maybe how you came up with that strategy to begin with and then how you maybe start to calculate you know the maybe lifetime value or customer acquisition cost or payback period or stuff like that so first of all if you're willing to give away a product for free you have to have a high level of confidence in your product so one is it has to be a good product Two is you have to have very good customer service and you have to have a very strong consumer engagement strategy. What consumers don't want to see is just an engagement around this is how much money you owe us or this is what we've charged to your credit card. Consumers want to be engaged. They want to understand what's happening in the coffee world. Um, they want content. And so, you know, when you're looking at bringing products to a consumer for free, your confidence level has to be supported by your sell-through of uh, your customer service and your ongoing products and services, the ability to allow that customer to change their, um, their frequency, to change the number of bags they receive, to suspend, to skip. It has to be the service that the consumer controls. If, um, if the consumer is in complete control, then you could afford to do it. If you don't put the consumer in control, it, you won't be able to afford to do it. So, so, so I want to get into the weeds with some of that in one second, but you guys have a subscription product. Do you Correct. think that you could pull the giveaway, the free giveaway without having just a naturally built-in subscription product? As a one-shot and to send it as a one-shot? That now becomes a question of, do you want to give something away for free and then do a resell repromote. And so I wouldn't say that you would want to do that more on a one-shot basis. 
Um, we do highly discounted uh, product to try it if you're trying it for um, the first time. Like, so, for example, if you go to our website, we happen to have a, um, a great product coming in from Guatemala right now. And if you're a first-time trier and you want to try it, it's 40% off. A question we get often from people is they want to know, well, what exactly are you using for this? And at least I'll speak from my, my perspective and it'd be interesting to get your, your view is it's less about the tool and more about the strategy and the execution. But for, for you guys, how do you manage your subscriptions? And something you mentioned that I think is really important is the ability for your customers to buy how they want. And so it's not like, okay, now you're on this 30-day cycle and you get it every single 30 days, but you can pause and extend. How are you guys managing that today? And again, if you can share maybe some of the, the tools that you're utilizing. So we utilize a custom subscription platform that has been customized for our use. It's a third party, but it's been customized for our use for how we want to engage with our consumers. So it's not an off-the-shelf commoditized type of subscription service. This is a subscription service that is as we build in the uh, flexibility and the abilities that we want to be able to give to our consumers, uh, we could build them in at a uh, custom level. So we we find that it's really important for us to be nimble about um, how we are approaching each one of our customer relationships. It is not a one size fits all and it's not a one and done. It's uh, it's every single customer needs to be treated and managed to their, to their own unique preferences. And that's very important to us. So we invest in a third party um, customized solution to do that. Did you use something off the shelf first and then evolve into this? Or did you guys start with the, the customized product? We are 100% customized, okay. nothing off the shelf. Share a little bit about the customer journey when somebody like a first time buyer comes on, do they buy the machine and then all the different types of coffee or you guys bring in new, new types over a certain time period or do they go straight to the coffee? What is, what is that typical customer journey look like? So typically the consumer is coming in for the first time to try the coffee. So um, Amora, Amora coffee, who's Amora? Uh, Let's get a taste of Amora. So we will send them a bag of Amora coffee. We'll give them the opportunity up front to um, double or triple their order at a a discount, but uh, they'll have the opportunity to receive their um, first bag of coffee. It's on us as they continue to receive uh, their subscription shipments, which they've had the opportunity to customize. They have an online dashboard and they can go directly to their account and they can change everything about their account. They can, they can change any of their products, their shipment frequencies, their address, their payment mechanisms. But as they're going through that journey, we are constantly trying to enhance their coffee experience. So in their next shipment, we'll give them some sort of um, free gift on us. Maybe it's a silver plated uh, free scoop that is going to give you the opportunity to measure out the exact amount of coffee that is right for you. Or we'll give you an airtight canister to store your coffee because it's all about the fresh value proposition that Amora brings to you. We don't want beans hanging around on the um, on the counter. Or it might be uh, travel mugs um, for rum, drinking coffee here or on the go, or we used to drink coffee at work. Now we're drinking more coffee at home. Um, but, uh, so we're always providing we're always providing some level of gifts to our uh, consumers, and uh, some of our consumers actually earn their way up to even receiving free coffee makers. Okay, I, I want to get into that a little bit later too, along with some of the trends that you've seen, you know, since COVID and how things have been evolving. But something that I find fascinating is seeing where people started their careers. I want to get into some of that a little bit later as well and and how that's evolved. But, you know, you've had a very successful career at some very large companies that everybody's heard of, which again, we'll, we'll share in a minute to running, you know, being an entrepreneur and running your own businesses or your businesses with your wife. When you guys started Amora, you know, this was before, I don't know, D2C was cool. Was subscription an extreme, an integral part for you guys launching this when deciding you could have obviously you know, gone in probably many different directions on the next company you were going to start. Mm-hmm. But in starting this e-commerce business, was subscription integral part of that or kind of an afterthought? No, it was integral. Um, so 
most of my career has been in direct-to-consumer subscription, whether that was selling um, coffee for craft foods directly into the home for uh, Javalia or um, managing uh, Nestle's direct-to-home water business or even um, working with uh, Growyer and uh, selling great children's books like Disney and Dr. Seuss and Nickelodeon, all direct-to-consumer, all subscription. And then when I founded Facina Marketing Group in 2003, the entire platform in the agency was to bring clients' products to market in a digital and subscription format. And we did that for 15 or 16 years before selling that to a company who was really looking for that internalized subscription capability. And so actually, here's a cool question from Karen. Do you, are you roasting to order? So we do not roast to order relative to I would like this type of um, bean configuration or blend configuration. So we have multiple blend configurations. Uh, so we have four different blends. You can receive that in whole bean or um, ground or regular decaf. We have four different flavors. And we also have uh, single origin coffees. So we have the opportunity to choose from those particular coffees. And then as you're choosing from those coffees, our goal is to get coffee to just as fresh as we believe we can. So we always roast in very small batch so that we can get coffee to you that is not sitting on store shelves for months and months, but coffee to you that's going to be much more fresh than that. So you mentioned craft foods, and then I know you were, you were there for about eight years and then Scholastic for about five years. And I'm sure Scholastic makes all of us think back to you know nostalgic elementary and middle school days. What was something that, again, I, th- I also like to think a lot about like just fundamentals and a lot of things, I think, I don't know, as w- we get older and more experienced, you can continue just to come more and more back to just your like core fundamentals and like your approach. What are some things that were really implanted in you at, at craft and you, you see yourself going back to often? Always leave the consumer in a better frame of mind before their initial transaction or communication with you. We learned that very early on. I've had several mentors in uh, my career, and one of my mentors uh, taught me to always make sure that you leave a consumer in a better frame of mind than before they contacted you. That is first and foremost and priority for us every single day. Can you give me an example of that? So a good example could be a consumer who is calling up and saying that, uh, gee, you know, I really don't um, like the Delicata blend. It is really, it's really too light for me. And, you know, I have a whole whole shipment of it here. And so our position would be fine. Um, You know, we have three other blends. Let's bring you up a notch or two and let us send you three, four more bags. And don't worry, it's on us. Awesome. And then, what about with Scholastic? What, what's something that you learn there and you find yourself revisiting quite often? So um, with Scholastic and Grolier, the one thing that I learned was that uh, it is very, very important to manage to every single KPI of your business. So when I was working for Grolier, I was charged with bringing their traditional business to the online digital business. And so now we're talking about the latter part of the 1990s. And in the latter part of the 1990s, it really was the true wild west of um, digital e-commerce, internet marketing. And so for me, it was all about being able to allocate and return every single dollar invested to some sort of return on on revenue. So back in those days, as companies were launching their internet um, strategies, it really was a um, strategy of grabbing as much land grab online marketing advertising that they could, as opposed to tying it back to a return on investment. So if you know that um, in a highly targeted traditional direct mail list that you can only afford $85 a thousand in targeting a consumer, you shouldn't be spending two or $300 a thousand for impressions on banners like what was happening back then. That was a very strong financial discipline that uh, we stayed very focused on, which led us to developing in a direct-to-consumer online digital subscription business that uh, led to the sale of the company to uh, Scholastic. So um, it, 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 was, it was financial management, KPI management. Never let go of your KPIs. The second you let go of your KPIs, you can find yourself um, going down to a hole very quickly. I love that. And, you know, just instrumenting what's needed to track that properly. And again, discipline and patience. 
You mentioned the wild, wild west of marketing, and we see that pop up here and there as new channels come online, and then those channels start rolling out different advertising capabilities. I know I've experienced a few myself. Any funny stories you can share on some of those late late 90s? So, you know, in the late 90s, if you were watching the Super Bowl ads um, today, you would chuckle quite a bit. And, uh, you know, you look at, you know, what people were spending um, relative to a D2C play. But uh, what I learned in the um, latter part of the 90s, and, you know, you, it could become a laughable matter or it could become a very serious matter, is I've always said, get me once, um, shame on you. Get me twice, shame on me. And so it, it's a matter of learning from your mistakes. Do not be afraid of making mistakes. Just don't make that same mistake a second time. Otherwise, it's, otherwise it's shame on me instead of shame on somebody else. <laughs> I like that. So here, let's, looks like we have some, some questions we can probably uh, we'll run through now from the audience. So from ABS, your subscription shipments, are they free for the entire North America? Or is it purely for marketing sake? I don't know if that's really an or, but I guess, how are you approaching like the subscription shipments? So right now, so there's subscription shipments to join if you are in the United States, because we're only shipping in the United States right now. So any place in the United States, you are welcome to join and receive your first bag for free if you're paying shipping and handling. And I don't know if you can share specific data here, but maybe if you can, awesome. If you can't, maybe share some of your thought process here. So question from Vic. What's your customer retention rates after one to two years? And again, if I'm going to add a little bit to that, how do you evaluate or think about customer retention? So I wouldn't say we would share customer retention rates. Uh, That would be uh, sort of proprietary. But how do we look at our um, customer retention rates? It's very focused and, and we look at it as people are coming in and trying and experimenting in what we call an expression of interest. And so the expression of interest in receiving a um, free bag of coffee. And then we're looking at those folks who are converting from that expression of interest to a true buyer. And then we look at that true buyer as they go to shipment two and shipment number three, and we assess and analyze them as the loyalist. And once you get down to that shipment four or five, that's where you're really starting to create loyalty. And especially for a more coffee, Amora coffee is $30 a pound. And so um, it, is, it is definitely a super premium coffee based on how we are manufacturing our coffee. And um, every, to, to this day, everything is still um, small batch roasted. To this day, everything is still hand packed. We don't expose it to forced oxygen or forced nitrogen for uh, bagging purposes. There's costs associated with it, but our consumers are very happy to be able to enjoy the quality of what we can deliver in the cup. So, so you mentioned how it's a luxury or a premium good. And here's a question from Carlos that I think fits in right with that. So what suggestions do you have to grow a high-priced premium brand from zero? So if you're developing from zero, first of all, you have to come, you have to have a value proposition and your value proposition has to be one that is going to sit in the mind of your consumer as this is worth spending on me or this is worth spending on somebody else. And so if you're just going to be another commodity type of product, then you're probably not going to reside in the premium space. Coffee is a highly commoditized product. 80 some odd percent of Americans drink coffee. So when we put our value proposition together, it was all about the aroma and the smell and the taste and the freshness and the speed of delivery of our product into the household. And that was our unique value proposition. So you really have to have a unique value proposition. Otherwise, you're just going to be looked at and compared to others without any real material differentiation. So, so I want to drill into value prop and brand in a second, but what you said actually sparked something I was thinking of earlier today with how 80% of Americans drink coffee. I remember at this, this co-working space that I used to work at, one of the days I went in and, and the coffee machine was down <laughs> and it's like, you take all these like civilized adults and they're like wandering around like with their heads cut off, having no idea what to do. (laughs) And so it's just so fascinating to see like the dependence on coffee. I was actually going to pull the audience. You guys can chime in. Coffee or Wi-Fi? If one went down, which would you freak out about more? 
Um, cause it's just, it's just so fascinating where you see, you see Wi-Fi down or you see coffee and it's just, people have no idea what to do with themselves. And there we go. Everybody coffee, 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 coffee. That's such a way to start the day. You know, Casey, we're really seeing that um, today, you know, a lot of us are working from home. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, we're working from home and we've all pivoted, you know, very quickly and very assertively to having to work from home. But we, what we have found with Amora Coffee is just because we're working from home doesn't mean we are drinking less coffee at home. And so you're not stopping at your favorite uh, bistro on the way to the office to pick up your favorite cup of joe. You are not getting the coffee at the uh, in the coffee room at the office or, or, you know, so many offices today actually have these wonderful bistros because coffee really has become part of everybody's day um, throughout the morning and throughout the afternoon, and whether it's hot or whether it's cold. And so um, we're seeing a huge demand for uh, coffee at home right now because because people are still working. Just because they're working from home doesn't mean they're going to stop drinking coffee. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's, let's dive into that. And by the way, I like Abius's comment here. For Wi-Fi, it would be a relief. Yes, I'm sure a lot of people agree there. It's <laughs> nice to have Wi-Fi down for a minute. When COVID hit, did you see a change in buyer behavior? And by that, I mean, in maybe what they bought from you and also how they bought from stocking up in bulk to a bunch of one-offs. If you can just share anything there. When COVID hit, one of the things that we started to see was our existing customer file started to accelerate their shipments and they started to add more bags to their shipment. Why? Because they're home. And uh, so now they're brewing their own coffee. And so um, they needed more coffee. That was definitely one thing that we saw. And then the other thing we saw was in all of our advertising, whether it was social platforms or uh, search platforms or any other kind of display platforms or an email, um, we saw our conversions going up. So um, we saw a material increase in our conversions of people looking to um, join Amora as a uh, subscription because of a couple of things. Number one, more people need more coffee at home. And number two, you really did have the undivided attention of people who are at home now who were um, looking and shopping for um, a need or, or, or a want coming into the home. How granular do you get in customer segmentation and analyzing who the buyers are? Let's say like a look back of June, like who were those buyers across the different channels and, and what's their makeup? We look at a very granular level. So we're always looking at a geo level. We are always looking at a number of bags or a number of uh, shipments. Are you receiving shipments every four weeks, every six weeks, or every two weeks? But um, interestingly, you know, and I think we have a lot of people on the West Coast uh, on uh, on this podcast. But uh, you know, we saw a uh, a sharp increase in sales on the West Coast, and I think that's probably because the West Coast was sooner than most others to start um, stepping back and um, working from home. So we were able to see a, a- On the West on the west Coast. On the West Coast, yeah. But we get very granular relative to, uh, you know, understanding where our buyer's from. Is it a he? Is it a she? We're always doing um, post-back analysis to understand our overall demo relative to um, age. We are finding that- more consumers are buying coffee at a younger age. They're drinking coffee at a younger age. They're becoming the basis of whether it's a hot beverage or a cold beverage. They are replacing the um, fizzies and the sugary drinks with a base of coffee, albeit they're putting a lot of um, sugar and uh, uh, sweet things in it. But coffee is becoming, especially espresso, is becoming a significant base of coffee. As a matter of fact, so much so that we just launched our espresso line because our consumers were um, really demanding espresso. Similarly, a couple of years ago, we had a very high demand for cold brew. So we launched our cold brew line. Interesting. Like, I, f- I find the, this benefits you guys greatly how people are starting to drink coffee earlier because now you're total addressable markets growing. I find this fascinating where I didn't start drinking coffee really until after my, uh, I had my first child because for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> and then I was talking to my cousin who's in high school and he says that they serve coffee on his high school campus and his friends like will drink several cups a day, which just blows mine. Like I couldn't even comprehend drinking coffee in, in high school. So that's pretty interesting. And then when you said carving up the customer data, again, I think of like, you know, I know there's a lot of people like my myself and my wife where 
we're both working from home. We have several children. You know, coffee is much needed. I'm on the West Coast. We start working on the East Coast time. And so it's, it's just interesting. I mean, it's, it's how you kickstart your day. Absolutely. And, and as we're looking at our consumers and their taste preferences, we understand which consumers are, are flavored coffee drinkers versus lighter roast and versus espresso. So like espresso, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, would espresso skew older or younger? I would have certainly said older male. And uh, if you look at espresso now, it skews younger female. Why do you think espresso is more popular today than it was before? Because that's the base of the coffee and that's the extra shot and the extra oomph that everyone's looking for at four o'clock in the morning when they're starting on uh, West Coast. (laughs) There we go. So here's a question from Karen. We get this quite a bit is what has been your best customer acquisition medium or channel? And then if I was to add something to that, how have you seen that evolve over time? Because for example, Facebook and Instagram or Instagram did not really, Instagram did not exist as an advertising channel when you guys launched. So what have you guys found most fruitful today and where did you guys start? So endorsed partnerships are always the best. So if Amora Coffee is endorsing another product um, to our customer base, that other product is being presented to our consumers with a high level of credibility. Vice versa, we work with a lot of companies where they endorse our product to their consumer base, which drives up our credibility and uh, really drives sales for us. So the best channel for us has always been in co-endorsed partnerships. And and that is how we uh, originally launched the business. And it has always been a, a primary mainstay of the business. Awesome. But by the way, I know we're like halfway through. Usually we have like two guests on here. So I really appreciate you just being here. We've got so many great questions from the audience. Double duty. Um, and so I don't know. Fortunately, you're in the coffee business. So you, you, can, you can keep going, I guess. Here's a question from Sean around Gen Z. And quick plug for a future series. We actually have Tiffany Zong, who is the quote unquote Gen Z whisperer joining us in a couple of weeks. Um, she runs a company called Zebra. So from Sean... How has your marketing changed as you target Gen Z? So as we target Gen Z, a lot of our marketing is around our product and our espresso and our cold brew. But one of the things that uh, we continue to evolve as a company is not only just the product itself, but looking at the packaging and looking at the communication strategies, talking to a Gen Z is so much different than talking to a Gen X. And so it's really important that you're having dialogue individually with them. And and, and that is something that we um, continue to work towards. So something I noticed on your website when you talk about, you know, talking with them is very clear in your main navigation, you have meet us, and then you also have talk to us. How have you seen that evolve over time? Do you guys offer like SMS chat back and forth with customers? How do you envision that changing in the future? We're always encouraging our consumers to come to our website, chat with us through our website, whether that's through um, uh, an email correspondence or it's it's our open chat box. We have um, live agents um, 24-7-365. So we always have live agents on the other end of the phone or on the other end of uh, chat, because, you know, a consumer does not want to hear you're closed, especially in the digital landscape. And we also encourage our consumers to come in and read our blog. And we're always talking about new things that are happening in, happening in the coffee market or how to prepare your coffee. Or So it's, it's always a drive to the website and we're always asking them to engage with us there. And you'll even notice that there's a lot of companies out there that are afraid of putting a huge cancel button on the website. And if you look at our website, there's a huge button that says cancel. Okay. We don't ever want to have a consumer continuing if they're not looking to really want to enjoy the product for whatever their reasons are. So it all goes back to the service you control is uh, making sure that uh, that consumer is left in a better state of mind than before the communication. So we really encourage our consumers to come through our website and engage with us. And we had very heavy engagement with our consumers. We are, our, our, our customer service concierge are very busy. <laughs> I bet. I, I love that. I mean, it just all comes down to that, that customer experience. And I mean, word of mouth marketing is the toughest to kickstart and the toughest to continue the momentum there. And so it's just, you know, continuously investing in that. Here's a, a great question from Rick. 
coffee subscriptions likely have a low switching cost barrier. So how does that impact your retention strategy? Rick, that is absolutely true. So it's very easy to, to point, click, and defect. And so I always said that in Amora. Um, but I've, you know, even when I owned my advertising agency and I advised my clients, my, it was always very important to make sure that every consumer out there in the digital landscape has a very easy capability of point, click, defect. And so the question becomes, are you going to allow them to do that? Well, you probably don't have a lot of control over it, um, but you could certainly do two things. One is um, when they do defect, you go back and communicate with them, understand why they defected and and try and bring them back and and answer their need. If they defected, they defected for a reason. So answer, answer the need for that reason and uh, bring them back in. The other side of it is um, to do what I, I, I consider um, competing with yourself. So sell other different types of um, coffees or tea. We sell tea and we sell coffee and we sell single origins versus blends. So it is okay to um, compete with yourself and, and, and sell different types of products to your consumers. Uh, I like that you said is really understand why they laughed. And you mentioned earlier like Gen Z, but I think people in general are just more open to having this two-way conversation and i think especially with covid and people spending more time at home or on their devices is they're looking to have that conversation with with the brand because there is somebody on the other end in both directions and so it's it's really doubling down on that there is we've actually seen our rate of inquiry our 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 rate of contacts go up as a percentage of inquiries versus just transactions we have a lot of consumers who just want to talk here's a question from hudson so going back to the early days of Amora, what were some surprises or learnings or I'll add in here, utter misses that resulted you know, in a shift of tactics or strategy? I'm going to give you my favorite one. And my favorite one is do not believe that you are representative of the consumer buying audience. The second you do that, you have made a fatal mistake. We look at Amora coffee and the way we roast it and hand pack it and deliver it. We look at it as a fine wine, or in my case, I'll look at it as um, a a fantastic aged um, bourbon. And so are you going to take a really nice aged bourbon and, um, you know, mix it with club soda or cranberry juice or or dilute it in any fashion other than putting it on a big rock? Okay. And I would always say absolutely not. So there was absolutely no way we were going to launch flavored coffee within this great blend of high-end beans and great roasting process and fresh. We just weren't going to do that. And that was my mistake because um, probably about half of our consumers enjoy different types of flavors of coffee, whether it's hazelnut or whether it's vanilla or whether it's pumpkin spice or blueberry or Southern pecan. Don't make the mistake of thinking that uh, you can predict somebody else's uh, taste preferences. So uh, we had to uh, very quickly change our methodology and make sure that we had flavors in our portfolio. I love that. That's I, I think just getting the customer feedback. It's just it's so humbling and and helpful at times. You're like, all right, I'm I'm not the audience. I'm a sample size of one, and you know we're trying to sell to a much broader audience. So can you can you, we dig in a little deeper there? Like what was the tipping point or how what was that light bulb moment where you're like, I'm not my audience. I'm going to begrudgingly or maybe happily start selling hazelnut or other flavors. It was me relying on the input of uh, my team. And uh, I have always had a fantastic team surrounding me, whether it's my team at Amora Coffee or it was my team at uh, Facina Marketing Group or whether it was the team that I had the opportunity to um, play on at um, Growyer or Scholastic or Nestle or Kraft Foods. Um, It was sitting back and listening to the input of your team. And when your team is telling you that there is something that could be enhanced or done better, you have to sit back and listen. One of the things that um, I was taught a long time ago were some very strong words of wisdom that was given to me when I went from the corporate side to the entrepreneur side was make sure you grow some very thick skin because you're going to need it. And so um, surround yourself with people who know more than you do about the topic. And uh, that becomes the light bulb uh, moment. Love it. And so I've got you here. You're dropping knowledge for everybody here. So here's a question from Shanak. What are your top strategies from moving 
consumers from that one-off or ad hoc purchase to subscription? Are you offering discounts or free shipping? Or how are you positioning Amora to get them onto the subscription product? So it's really interesting. Uh, some consumers rather a discount in the product. Some consumers rather a discount on the product, uh, free shipping. And uh, some consumers um, prefer that uh, you provide coffee and coffee-related uh, product. And it's really interesting that um, we have consumers that uh, prefer to buy in different patterns. So there are different segments of um, consumers that we will try to target our absolute best offer based on the input that they're providing to us. If you make it easy for the consumer to subscribe and then you give them a really good value proposition to stay, then it doesn't become overly difficult to um, switch a one-time buyer over to a subscriber. Here's a question, another one from Karen. Would you ever consider a white label partnership? I'm not sure in which direction she's referring this to, but would you ever consider white label partnership? And if not, why? We're asked all the time if we could white label our product to other um, coffee companies whether um, or other companies, whether that's a uh, direct-to-consumer company or whether it's a retail company. So for us, it has always been um, our brand is about bringing our product into the household in a um, fashion where we believe you know, we, we are the best of any coffee product that can be in that household. So when we talk about competing with ourselves, um, we are very happy to compete with brands and line extensions um, so long as we are managing it relative to offering out white label. We have steered away from that. I think the concept of brand is fascinating and everybody has a different definition and it's something that founders and companies must protect at all costs. How do you define and measure brand? So defining and measuring brand, um, a lot of people would say to you, uh, you're going to have to define it by your um, brand recognition and recall rate within a household. And as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is when you're bringing a new brand into a household, you may not have that same um, brand recognition that a Starbucks might have or an Amazon might have or, you know, so it's not always measuring it on the recall rate. When you're measuring your brand, you have to measure it based on um, how consumers are staying with your brand. So, you know, if you're building a business organically or if you're, uh, you know, have huge investment dollars behind you, it doesn't matter which one it is. You always need to be looking at, is your consumer staying with your brand? And if your consumer is staying with your brand, that's how you're measuring the success of your brand. How much do you focus on Amora? and your customers versus also looking at the competition and what they're bringing to market? And how do you kind of balance that where you're not getting distracted from the competition but focusing on your brand, but making sure that you monitor it to an extent that you're ahead of the competition? So how do you juggle that? We have very focused attention on competition. <laughs> uh, so so we're, we're, we are always looking, we don't look at it as a uh, distraction, we look at it as education. So we are always looking at um, the competition. And, uh, you know, there are times where the competition is doing something better than us. And uh, you have to compliment them for that. And what do you do? You adapt to it. There are times where you see the competition is not doing something as good as you are. And you make sure that you capitalize on what you're doing good, uh, that what you're doing well. So we are um, hyper focused on the uh, competition and understanding uh, where we sit within that competitive landscape. I always see a lot of conflicting views on competition, but I mean, if it gets you fired up and working harder and, and more intelligently, and you got to use that data as like one of many inputs on, on what's going to drive, you know, your, your future decision-making. A question from Mel. So, you know, again, you launched, you've been marketing things online for, for a while now. You launched Amora about a decade plus or minus ago. How do you see e-commerce evolving over the next year or so? So if you asked me that question 120 days ago, I probably would have had a very different answer for you. But uh, today with um, COVID-19 
when you look at e-commerce and you look at the direct-to-consumer landscape, we have fast-forwarded. We can call it three years. We can call it five years. We can call it seven years. Okay, but we have fast-forwarded in um, the this this change in consumer purchase behavior. Why? So many consumers were forced into change, and once they got forced into change because of the limitations of uh, stay-at-home. The consumers are now embracing and adapting to that change. It's not going away. We always knew that direct-to-consumer was going to continue to evolve as um, the years rolled on. Okay, And in January, when we were looking at our strategic plan for um, 2020, 21, and 22, okay, we had a particular growth plan and growth strategy that would mirror where we believe the direct-to-consumer landscape was going to move. Today, that has increased exponentially. So you mentioned that things won't change. So a question from your perspective, do you think this buyer behavior sticks? Do you think if things, best case scenario, start opening up in the next couple months or early next year, people will start to go back to their old ways? Like, How do you see this holding? So will 100% stick? No, 100% never sticks, okay? Uh, Will some people go back to buying differently or buying traditionally? Yes, consumers want choice in how they buy. That's critically important. But what, what this has done has shifted consumer purchase behavior into people trying something outside of their comfort zone that they may not have tried all on their own until their only opportunity was to try a direct-to-consumer digital type of purchase. So what's happened is, so there are many more consumers who probably wouldn't have gotten down the line of uh, that, that trial basis of trying something new until they really had to do it. So um, if somebody throws you into a swim, swimming pool and you don't know how to swim, you're going to try and learn how to swim really fast. So, some of these numbers might be slightly off, but you know, pre-COVID, I think the percent of retail done online was you know between fourteen and eighteen percent. It was historically growing, you know, by let's call it ten percent or something year over year. Now it looks like we're in the twenty-five to thirty-five percent range. That's still a huge chunk of retail that's not happening online. And again, sample size of one with myself, other than a handful of Target runs, I haven't bought anything in person since the middle of March. What do you think are some of the barriers from from further accelerating the percent of retail that's done online? And why do you think people are still going in person? So first of all, I think I think those barriers are going to be busted right through. And the reason for that is um, during this time of COVID-19, the large retailers are being forced to um, pivot and to rethink their strategies. And um, similar to how us as consumers sort of had to migrate to online purchases for even some of the simplest things, these retailers are now pivoting into providing all of their products and offerings into online as well. They have to, you know, they're going to have to uh, repurpose much of um, some of their retail space. So retail is never going to go away. You know, anybody who thinks retail is going to totally go away, that I, I don't believe that for a second. Consumers still want to touch and feel and, um, and it's an experience. But the opportunity to purchase through additional channels and, you know, we're talking about the retail channel. We're talking about the direct digital channel. We haven't even figured out what the next channel is going to be, but there's going to be another channel coming, coming along. But uh, I think you're going to see a lot of the large retailers repurposing and uh, pivoting to a mix of online and uh, retail. So I think, I think digital and direct to consumer is going to continue going up even as retail is coming back. And I think you're going to see a lot of repurposing of retail space that's going to lend itself to um, digital purchase. There's so much to go in there where, well, when you mentioned experience, I'm very excited on it's It's just this like forcing mechanism on these retail stores to evolve, to create it more experiential. And what else am I getting there? Is it is it coffee through Amora that's going to bring me back into like a bookstore or, you know, what, what is it? How can that continue to evolve? And you mentioned, we don't know what the next channel is. Like, for example, Netflix has said that, you know, their competitors aren't necessarily like 
Hulu or direct competitor, it's, it's just screen time. Their biggest competitors are like Facebook and TikTok and others. And, and as we think through changing commerce and where you can buy, can you start buying through Netflix or you get, start getting more niche? Can you buy through your Peloton app? like while you're biking right there based off the clothes that they're buying and how does that headless commerce experience look like? And they already have your credit card. So can it literally be just one, one click and it's there in two days. So just, it's, it's fascinating where we go from there. So I know we're almost at the top of the hour. I have one more question for you, which I ask everybody at the end. I'll get to that in one second. First, um, I should have mentioned this earlier, huge shout out to Hawk Media, one of the largest and most prolific e-commerce marketing agencies out there. They help tee up uh, Jim here. And so again, thank you to Hawk. Thank you to Jim for joining. And a question I have for the audience before I have my last question for Jim is, we want to hear from you all as well. Just like Jim said, hear from and talk to your customers. We're actually going to be sending out a survey soon. But like, what other topics do you guys want us to cover? What other guests or brands do you want to hear from? As I mentioned the other day, like I'll cold email anybody. (laughs) We have connections with people in the space. We can hopefully get some good people on. I did mention, you know, well, more brands. We have some people talking about Gen Z and how that how marketing is evolving over there. So, please throw it in the chat. Email us. I'll throw my my email in the chat as well. But my last question for you, Jim, what is uh, your number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs today? My number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs is um, number one, um, you know, find yourself a mentor, somebody that you can bounce your ideas and thoughts off of. It's really important to keep yourself centered and to keep yourself level in your thinking and uh, make sure you pick somebody who is willing to call BS on you and uh, and, and is willing to say you're really going down the uh, wrong road and um, don't be offended if that person hurts your feelings. Um, they're not trying to hurt your feelings. They're trying to help steer you into not falling into major craters of financial distress. So always make sure that uh, you have a, um, uh, a mentor. The second thing is never let go of the KPIs. And so um, KPIs are is what runs your business. And if you're working with a partner who is achieving your uh, KPIs, that is fantastic. Continue working with that partner. If the partner is not achieving those KPIs, try and work it out with them. And if that partner can't meet the KPIs, you need to find a new partner. So I never ask follow-up questions to the number one thing, but I actually, a question that I see all over the place often, you mentioned mentors, and I completely agree. If you can find a strong mentor, do whatever you can to hold on to them and ask for unfiltered feedback. Because like you said, they're, they're giving you this because they want you to succeed. And actually, the harsher they are, the probably more they want you to succeed. If they're just giving you fluffy stuff, then they're probably not really mentoring you. How do you find that person? Maybe they don't view themselves as a mentor, but like, how did you put yourself in a position to, to find somebody that was in the position to, to give you this, this very strong and, and important feedback? My number one mentor is a gentleman made by the name of Dante Cirilli, who was the previous president of Grolier. And when I worked at uh, Grolier, and um, I was running a, a pretty large product line, and he decided to put me onto the dot-com online internet side of the business and strip me of all of my staff and all of my budget. I thought I was being absolutely punished. And uh, he said to me, he said, no, he said, I'm asking you to lead us into the next generation of consumer buying. And uh, from that day, I trusted him. And to this day, I continue to call him when I have a question. He is uh, quite senior to me. And every every time I call, he, he picks up that phone. And uh, whether I like hearing what he has to say or not, I take it to heart. Love that. Well, Jim, I really appreciate your time. There's so much you could do with this hour. Same with everybody in the audience. We'll be here again next Wednesday. Thank you very much. Um, and best of luck with everything. Well, Casey, thank you. Nick, thank you. And everybody in the audience, thank you for joining. Um, this is wonderful. And I love talking about coffee and I love talking about direct-to-consumer. It's, yes. it's- a more, a more coffee. Go, go buy. <laughs> I'm about to right now. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye.